following sermon is by Andy Lake, the senior pastor of Liberty Bible Church. This program, Grow in Liberty, is the preaching ministry of Liberty Bible Church in Vienna, Ohio. Liberty Bible Church places a priority on the Word of God over all else and has a desire to share truth with believers and non-believers alike. Our prayer is that as people tune in, they would come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Join us as we grow together through the Word of God. What a wonderful hope. I'm so glad my hope is not found in me. If it was me, I'd be a miserable soul, that's for sure. We're going to have a quick word of prayer, a little bit of time in prayer again. And we believe in the power of prayer. I was talking with uh, another fellow in ministry, and he was surprised. He says, you all pray that much? Don't you? (laughs) We love prayer. We believe in the power of prayer and the privilege of prayer. We take it seriously. And so we want to spend that time in prayer. Uh, if you don't get a copy of the weekly prayer journal, you're missing out on an opportunity to spend time in the, uh, with the Lord in prayer on behalf of your brothers and sisters in Christ. So please make sure you let Sister Debbie or just write your email address on a piece of paper, drop it in one of the uh, offering boxes on your way out. We'll make sure to get you added to it. Put your name with it so we know whose email we're sending. Um, a lot of things going on, a lot of things coming up. The end of the year is approaching. This time of the year can be difficult for many people, um, so be praying. Uh, many people have lost folks. Um, they've had to say goodbye. A lot of people struggle with depression and anxiety at this time of the year, so please keep them in, in your prayers. So, We're also going to lift up uh, our Missionary of the Month, which are the Roma missionaries and the Romani people, uh, more commonly referred to as the gypsies. Uh, these are the missionaries that go out to help reach them. And so uh, be, uh, be praying for them. Brother Walter Stevens and uh, those missionaries, Geetz Afekata, and people of that nature that are trying to reach them, um, the Roma. But then also uh, this week we have Don and Beverly Sixth on our missionary uh, prayer need. And uh, they're trying to reach uh, Scandinavia. And they have uh, come stateside for a little while um, for some uh, time off. They haven't been off the field for several years. So they needed to come home, do a little bit of uh, furlough, uh, recharge. So be praying for them as they uh, get ready to head back out. Um, And be praying for their family as they try to take care of some familial needs here. Let's go to Lord in prayer, and then uh, we'll... We'll dismiss the children after this, and then we'll go into our service. Great God and Savior, thank you. Thank you that you are concerned with us. Thank you that you love us. And Father, the, uh, the health needs that are on this list are, are many. There are several needs that are on here that should I begin, I'm sure that I would mess up. I'm sure that there are needs that are not mentioned in our prayer list here. And that, Father, you know, maybe we don't, 
but you do. And God, it's something that we don't do enough, but your word says in everything, give thanks. So, Father, I'm thanking you for the problems. I'm thanking you for the struggles and the hardships that some are facing. I'm thanking you for the physical ailments. Because, Father, it, it is the foolish things and the weak things that confound the wise and the strong. And so, Father, when we are face to face with our need of help, it reminds us of our need of a Savior, of our frailty, and it reminds us to rely on you. Father, I'm asking you to do some amazing things in and through your, your servants. And specifically this week, Father, we want to lift up the sixth family. Father, I know they've got several things on the plate, uh, dealing with some family situations while at home, and their heart is to be in ministry. So, Father, comfort them, guide them, direct them. And Father, use them in a very real way while they're here stateside. Give them rest. Give them a renewed focus. Father, for the uh, missionaries that are out to reach the Roma, Father, everyone, every single soul is precious in your sight. And so we know that it is your heart to reach those who sometimes are unwanted and difficult to reach. So, Father, thank you for calling and sending some. And Father, as you call and send them, may we be diligent about helping be a sender. So, Father, I, I ask, Lord, that you would watch over also the service that is going to take place not only here, but in churches all around the world today. And Father, we're thankful that there have been many churches meeting, and many more churches will continue to meet. And so, Lord, I'm asking that you would be glorified and magnified today, that this would not be a day where we just go through the motions not be a day where we just hear something from someone's mouth, but, Father, that we would hear from heaven and the word of the Lord. And, Father, as we hear your word, may we diligently and wholeheartedly submit to it and give ourselves to the God of this word. Because, Father, you and you alone are worthy of that kind of attention, that kind of praise, that kind of glory and adoration. So, Father, we worship you this morning. We're thankful for the songs that have been sung, the prayers that have been lifted up, the praises that have been offered. And so, Father, now as we begin to worship in the Word of God, and as the children prepare to dismiss into their class to worship as well, we just pray, Father, a special blessing and a touch from heaven that we would be changed. We pray these things in your son's name and for his sake. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you, children. You are dismissed. And those of you who are stuck with me, we're going to be in the book of Amos this morning, but I want to start off in 2 Timothy Chapter number three. So if you'd stand with me for the reading of God's word, Second Timothy chapter three. Stand with me if you would, please. 
Look with me. Uh, start in verse 14. This is Paul's words to Timothy, some of his final words. Starting in verse 14, it says, But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned, and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Father, bless the reading of your word, and as we begin our study in the book of Amos, that you would open our eyes and open our minds. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Flipping back to the book of Amos so that we're in our text for this morning, I did want to start in 2 Timothy. I wanted it uh, to be something that we, uh, that we allow to arrest our attention before we get into this study. Minor prophets uh, oftentimes get a bad rap. And there's actually, if you look at the message that we're going to come across in the book of Amos, we could probably uh, equate the book of Amos to more of a major prophetic style of address. The, the minor prophets are not minor in importance, and it's important for us to remember that. The minor prophets are not uh, given the title minor prophet because they are less than or not as important as. Rather, the minor prophets are titled minor prophets because of their size, not their content. And so it's important to, rem- to remind ourselves as we get into these minor prophets uh, that as Paul was talking to Timothy and charged Timothy and reminded Timothy, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. All Scripture is profitable for teachings, for doctrines. All Scripture is profitable for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. This is something that every part of the Word of God has for it. So whether we're in the beginning of Genesis, uh, some of the major prophets, we're in the books of wisdom or in the books of poetry, or we're over here in the minor prophets, or we get into the New Testament, no matter where we are in the Word of God, it contains profitable material for us to apply to our life. Here we find ourselves in our study of the minor prophets now in the book of Amos. And I'm trying to do this not in, a, uh, in the order that it's placed in the Word of God for you, but I'm trying to give you these minor prophets in more of a chronological order. And so we find ourselves here in the book of Amos. Look with me, if you would, at chapter number 1, verse 1. It says, The words of Amos, who was among the herdmen of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, The Lord will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem, and the, and the habitations of the shepherds shall mourn, and the top of Carmel shall wither. Here we are introduced uh, a man by the name of Amos, 
and it lets us know who he is and what he is. And so as we begin our study here in the book of Amos, it will be good for us to know something about the period that we are studying so that we can have an, uh, an understanding not only of the message, but of the messenger and the audience and, and the situation that was surrounding them. Now, contemporary to Amos uh, is, would be Hosea, Micah, and Isaiah. These are more contemporaries to Amos, and so if we were to read in one of those books, we would see some things taking place around the same time. Uh, we come uh, to a rather simple um, but quite true uh, uh, statement here uh, that is given to us time and time again in the following verses, uh, thus saith the Lord. And so you see that starting there in verse 3. It repeats in verse 6, verse uh, 9, verse 11, verse 13. Uh, chapter number 2, verse 1, verse 4, and verse 6. Thus saith the Lord. And so understanding what was going on, uh, we have ourselves um, uh, this timing of uh, uh, clues coming in as to when he is preaching, but not only when he is preaching, what he is preaching. And it's important for us to understand that when we see the sermon that we read in the Word of God, these are men who are hopefully delivering God's message to God's people. And so as Amos steps out onto the scene, he lets us know right there in verse number 1, it was during Uzziah's reign, Uzziah's reign in, in Judah and Jeroboam's reign, Jeroboam II's reign in uh, Israel. Jeroboam II being the son of Joash, he reigned in Israel from 793 to 753 B.C., and Uzziah reigned 792 to 740 B.C. So this gives us an idea of when this uh, uh, prophet was preaching and teaching. And so here we are at the 8th century B.C. A lot of things taking place during the 8th century B.C. Very busy time of history. I'll give you just a few of these things. We'll put up just some uh, interesting things. Rome and Carthage enter into the scene in the 8th century B.C. Greece is establishing the first Olympic Games during the 8th century B.C. Homer's Iliad was being written at that time. Uh, the Greek language was solidifying. And the Romans' roads were being built, but guess what else was taking place? God's patience with, patience with his children was wearing thin. So the 8th century was a very busy time. You can find a lot of things taking place during the dynasties in China, India, and things going on during that 8th century. Uh, but some of the things to kind of point and, and help us to see the richness of this time and what was taking place with the Greek language solidifying, what a wonderful time of our history because it was the Greek language that gave to us the New Testament. Not only was that taking place, but Rome was coming onto the scene. And if you remember Rome and Carthage, these were the two major players in the Punic Wars. And Rome ended up uh, uh, overcoming. And so if you've ever studied into the Punic Wars, you know who Rome and Carthage are and these two uh, superpowers coming into play. Um, uh, but, uh, Rome was beginning to step out, and because of them, the Romans' roads were being built. And so all roads led to Rome, right? And so guess what the Romans' roads really helped accomplish was the spreading of the gospel. 
And so we have some amazing things taking place during this time, a language that caused the spreading of the gospel, a road system that was that caused the spreading of the gospel, and God's word was able to be carried out in all these different places. And this was, these are things that were setting uh, the stage during this 8th century. God's people were wearing out their welcome, however, at this time. And, and if you if you remember from our study in the book of Jonah, Jonah, uh, his work going to the Ninevite people of Assyria, uh, this period actually led to a short, a brief generation of peace. And as a result, the people that, that Amos is preaching to is a generation of people who have never seen war. They've only known prosperity. They've only known good. And so this generation growing up without the experience of war, they have some different ideas and their view is a little bit different than the rest of Israel's would have been. So here we find ourselves uh, with these different folks. Damascus was overthrown by the Assyrian king uh, uh, during this uh, uh during this time leading up, the dawning of the 8th century, uh, you have this overthrow by the Assyrian king, uh, Adad-Nirari, and uh, the, second, uh, uh, the second freed uh, Israel, and the powerful army built by Uzziah increased Judah's merchant activities. But Jeroboam II did an amazing thing as well in restoring a majority of the territory that had fallen to Damascus back into the hands of the people and uh, into the uh, God's people. Now, these two kingdoms, Israel and Judah, began prospering financially, and their security was mainly found in their national strength and their economy. As a matter of fact, uh, the status in those days was to have a summer and winter home. Now, a lot of people snowbird. Don't, don't, don't stress. If you snowbird, I'm not coming against you here, Okay. But the, the status symbol was of having uh, two homes, and this became very self-reliant in this, and their national reliance, their self-reliance, led to an abandonment of their covenant with God. They had completely abandoned their covenant between them and God. <coughs> Excuse me. As we study, we're going to notice several things in these passages. But one of the main things that we're going to notice is the idolatry of the land. They had completely given themselves over uh, to anything except Yahweh God. And so idolatry was rampant, and then there's a judgment that is resulting as re- a- 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 because of all this, and uh, the, uh, there's a vision later on of future day and a future hope. But this book also puts to rest any criticism, at least the majority of it, uh, against the biblical faith um, uh, that where people argue that God, the God of the Bible is cruel and vindictive, especially the God of the Old Testament, and he was socially wrong. Amos actually comes at this and helps us to understand that there are things such as social evils. Many people, they wonder, should we do this? Should we do that? Should we act this way? Should we act that way? Amos brings to light a lot of the issues that we face 
and helps us to see that, yes, the Word of God is concerned about social interaction. I've actually had some people before say, the Bible doesn't teach you anything about social, how to interact socially. Yes, it does. I had one person argue me one time and says, well, the Bible doesn't tell you what to do when somebody cuts you off. And so you're going to discount the Word of God because it doesn't mention driving. And I said, yes, the Bible does tell you what to do. It says, forgive. Next question. It says, to treat others the way you would like to be treated. If you accidentally cut someone off, do you want them to chase you down and show you their IQ on the form of one finger? Treat them the way you would want to be treated. And so the Bible is very... Um, uh, very specific in some of these things. One of the things that you're going to notice is in chapter 5, look with me over in uh, Amos chapter number 5. Look at verse number 6 with me. Amos points out, says, Seek the Lord, and ye shall live. Keep that thought in your mind as you look at Amos chapter 5. And verse 14, seek good and not evil that ye may live. Now, a parallel that Amos apparently is drawing is that uh, to seek Jehovah is to seek good. And to shun good is to shun Jehovah. Now, I want to be careful with that because I'm sure someone will walk away saying, oh, that's what I was hoping you were going to say. I'm good, and I'm trying to be good. That means I'm okay with God. That's not what it says. It says, seek Jehovah and live. And the person who claims to seek Jehovah but is shunning good, there's a problem because Amos wants to connect the two. So we're going to notice those things as we go through this. The basic outline that we're going to try to uh, approach with this is uh, chapters 1 and 2 is judgment on Judah and its neighboring communities. Chapters 3 through 6, uh, judgment on Israel. Um, visions uh, with explanations will be seen in chapter 7 through 9, uh, the first portion of, of, of chapter 9, and then there's an epilogue chapter 9, verses 8 through 15. This is going to be our basic outline. Brother Jeff made mention a little bit ago that this is going to be a Sunday morning, Sunday night study. Now, I'm, I'm going to ask you to make it a priority to understand this book. If ever there is a timely prophetic book to study, it is this one. When we come to the book of Amos, what we are coming to is a book calling for individual and national repentance. And if ever there was a time the people of God need to get serious about repentance, it's today. And so we're going to get into this message this morning, and I've got, I've got eight pages of notes here. My typical sermon is two to three. So unless you want all eight pages now, come back tonight. Or as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story. 
Let's take a look. Amos introduces himself here in chapter 1, verse 1. He introduces himself, Amos, who was among the herdmen of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Amos introduces himself. Later on in this book, we're also going to find out some more things about Amos. He was not only a herdman or a shepherd or a, 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 a sheep keeper. He may not have necessarily been the owner of. He was a herdman in a little place known as Tekoa, a, a nobody from nowhere. But not only did he do that, he was also a dresser of sycamore trees. Now, sycamore trees, uh, we're all familiar with sycamore trees because Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he, right? And he climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. But there's more for us to understand about Zacchaeus, or not Zacchaeus, about sycamore trees. Sycamore trees produce a small fruit, a very small fruit that is referred to as the poor man's fig. And so not only was he a farmer of a, of a lower place, a small area, he was the farmer of the weeds. The poorest of the poor. A nobody from nowhere. He was not educated in the, uh, uh, in the things of, uh, of prophecy. He, was not, he didn't go to the school of the prophets. He was not taught how to preach which is one of the reasons I really like this guy. You know, when you're taught how to preach, you're taught how to put things together in a palatable forma, uh, formation. Amos doesn't worry about that. He just comes right out and says it. And when you get into the study of Amos and Hosea, and these two are being uh, are, are somewhat um, uh, contemporary of one another, you'll see the, the contrasts where Amos is a little more out of the chute. This is your problem. Let me expose the justness of God. And Hosea is a little more loving, and he's a little more, uh, let me show you the grace and the mercy of God. Now, this is not to say as a blanket statement that there's no grace and mercy found in Amos, nor is there justice found in Hosea, but you'll see the two different styles as we go into this. But Amos here, uh, he, he's not an educated man. He's a shepherd and a gardener, a very modest man with nothing in himself to glory. I love that about Amos. I love it. Let me kind of make this statement for you, and it's based off of 1 Corinthians 1.27 that says, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. See, education should never be shunned. Never be shunned. However, take caution not to become self-reliant and glory in your own abilities. People say sometimes the most dangerous person is a two-year med student because he can save every life. The second most dangerous person, or perhaps the first most dangerous, maybe we should have him in the wrong way, is a second-year theological student because he thinks he can save every soul. It's time for us to remember we are nothing. He is everything. And I love the way we see Amos here stepping out on the scene. I'm a nobody from nowhere, but God wants me to speak. Don't worry about the platform you have. Some of the most amazing things in God's history have taken place nowhere with just a few people. Think about this for just a moment. We, we often get in our minds that the greatest messages come from the greatest platforms, the greatest situations, the greatest crowds. You remember there was a little boy that was born 
And his birthplace was a stable. Surrounded by animals. Wasn't a grand stage. And a few shepherds showed up to congratulate the parents. Wasn't a wonderful crowd. Let's not forget that God uses the small things. And so don't be so upset. Well, I'm just a one person. I'm just a, I'm just a kid. I'm just a teenager. I'm just this. No. Let God use you. And it's amazing what he can do with the lowest of the low. As we look at these things, uh, education never being shirked, God's Word does teach us to study, though. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. He advises us to, uh, uh, Solomon himself advises us to pursue knowledge and to seek after wisdom. So while knowledge does increase sorrow, that's only because the more we know, the more we realize, <laughs> ooh, we in a pickle. So yeah, it's going to increase sorrow, but that's not something that should be run from. So education does have this danger that those who have studied and have experienced learning may become self-reliant. They may begin to glory in their own abilities. But, I, but here's a beautiful, beautiful picture of what Paul meant when he wrote 1 Corinthians one twenty seven that God hath chosen the foolish things to confound the wise. Another thing to note here with Amos, the theme is introduced. Look what it says in verse 2. And he said, The Lord will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem, and the habitations of the shepherds uh, shall mourn, and the top of Carmel shall wither. He says right there at the beginning, The Lord will roar. This is similar to what we read in the book of Joel. Uh, where he, uh, in Joel chapter 3, verse 16, he said, the lion shall roar uh, out of Judah. The lion roars, as we saw there, and Amos reminds us, the, the, the people, and he reminds the people of God that they will be judged just like the heathen will. I, I, I find it interesting, if, you, if you've parented for any amount of time, more than one child especially, or if you have ever taught children, or if you've uh, uh, been in the situation where you've had to confront, maybe you're in your workplace, you've had to confront two employees that just won't get along. You, you know what it's like when you sit the two kids down or, or you're, you're in a classroom and you have to reprimand a couple, they're, they're at it, right? And you have to, let's separate. Just stop because you're both talking and I don't want to listen to both at the same time. So we move one over here, one over there, and then we come over here and we start to discuss things with and we let them know what they did wrong, and we let them know that what the uh, the price of their rebellion or the uh, the the problem that they're going to face as a result of it. And what do they say? What about him? Right? Well, he did this, and she said that. And if if they hadn't done this, stop. I'll take care of them. You focus on you. I love the way Amos comes out of the chute. And before he goes to Israel and he says to Israel, this is what you've done, this is the problem, because he knows what Israel's going to do. Well, what about Moab? Or what about Ammon? Or what about uh, Tyre? What about, no, 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 stop. And so we notice here, at the very beginning of it all, Amos comes right out, barely introduces himself. Drop down to verse 6. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four. Verse 9. 
For the, uh, thus saith the Lord, for three transgression of Tyrus and for four. Verse 11, for three transgressions of Edom and for four. Verse 13, for three transgressions of the children of Ammon and for four. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab and for four. And verse 4, for three transgressions of Judah and for four. Verse 6, for three transgressions of Israel and for four. That's an interesting thing if you really think about it. Oh, wow, they all did three, maybe four things wrong. Maybe some of them did three things wrong and some of them did four things wrong and God's just trying to lump them all. No, 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 no. This statement is not giving to you an actual number of the things that they did wrong. What is trying to be uh, uh, indicated here is an indefinite number. You've done enough wrong. If you'd only done three or four things wrong. He's not trying to say they only did three or four because in our mind we would read something like that for three transgressions or for four and we think to ourselves, well, wow, God is supposed to be long-suffering but he only gave them three or four chances. That's not what's being said. It's a common statement that is used in Hebrew language. Uh, It's similar to what Solomon would have said uh, when he was saying, these six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto the Lord. Is he saying that only six things are hated by God? Only seven things are an abomination to the Lord? No. He's saying there are a lot of things. Let me give you some examples. And so when we come across these different, these different statements that we're going to see, right off the bat, we need to understand what's being told us. You've done a lot of bad things, even if it was just three or four. But then he says something else that is repetitive in this. Look at uh, verse number four. But I will send fire to the house of Hazael. Uh, Look at verse seven. But I will send fire. Look at verse 10. But I will send fire. Verse 12. But I will send fire. Verse 14. But I will kindle a fire. Verse, um, I lost it. There it is. Verse uh, five of chapter two. But I will send fire. Um, We, we, we see over and over and over again this fire coming uh, as a result, not of uh, oh, verse 2 of chapter 2 as well, but I will send a fire. We see it over and over again, I will send fire. Does that mean that God torched each of these places? No. The, word for, the, 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 the picture that is given to us through the word fire is that of judgment. And so here's what's being said, and you're going to notice that it goes all the way through to Judah, but in, when we get to Israel, starting in chapter 2, verse 6, it doesn't say God's going to send fire. It doesn't say that. Going back to my analogy of correcting kids, what he's saying is they're going to get judgment for what they did wrong. They're going to get judgment. They're going to get judgment. They're going to get judgment. Now, when we get to Israel... He lays out what the judgment is. And so when we look at these things, it's important for us to see not only the, uh, uh, the small picture, but the big picture as well. And so let's look at a few of these, and uh, we'll see how far we can make it this morning and uh, how much we'll have to get into tonight. If you look at uh, verse 3, thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus, and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they have threshed Gilead with threshing instruments of iron, but I will send a fire into the house of Hazael, which shall devour the places of Ben-Hadad, 
I will break also the bar of Damascus and cut off the habit, uh, inhabitant from the plain of Avon and uh, him that holdeth the scepter from the house of Eden and the people of, of Syria shall go into captivity unto Kur, saith the Lord. A few things that we want to kind of point out in this. This city was known, uh, Damascus was known as the pearl surrounded by emeralds. It was a very wealthy city. It was a very affluent place, and it was a place that many people kind of looked at, I guess, as a, as a that-day version of Dubai or New York City or somewhere that was very affluent. And these, these people would have seen this uh, and understood what was being said here. This was a beautiful city. However, in the beauty of this city, some of the most barbaric practices originated. It was, a, it was a, an amazing place, but it was also an amazingly sinful place. It was a constant problem for Gilead. Now, Gilead, if you were to look at the map, and uh, uh, Gilead would have been located on the east side of the Jordan River, and Damascus would have been directly northeast of Gilead. And so anytime Damascus was going to bring problems to the people of Israel, guess who they hit first? Good old Gilead. And Gilead, bless their heart, was the whipping boy for Israel for many years for many different people. But what it does is it lets you know, it lets them know right off the bat what their major crime was. Now, Gilead, uh, it it lets us know that these are uh, certain people that are going to be held very accountable. You see that in, uh, um, uh, look at verse 6, or I'm sorry, look at verse uh, 5. It says, I will break also the bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitant from the plain of Avon and him that holdeth the scepter from the house of Eden. These two places in, in uh, Damascus would have basically been, say, been like saying from Maine all the way to Southern California. We're, we're covering the whole shebang. But then he goes into the people of it in verse 4. He says, but I will send fire into the house of Hazael, uh, which shall devour the palaces of Ben-Hadad. These are specifics and um, broad terms. And so in Damascus, you had the house of Hazael, which would have been the, uh, the familial name, and then you would have had the Ben-Dad, which were the rulers. There were several rulers. Hazael ruled Syria from 840 to, uh, to 800, uh, 841 to 806 uh, committed heinous crimes against Israel. If you want to spend a little bit of time studying some of this, go back to 2 Kings chapter 8, and you'll find some more information there. Two or three kings of Syria uh, were named Ben-Hadad. Um, uh, Ben-Hadad basically means son of Hadad, and Hadad would have been a Syrian god, a Syrian deity. And so uh, um, uh, similar to the way in uh, the Hebrew names, like uh, like my children, you have Danielle, and you have Abigail, and you have Gabriel, and that L at the end of those names indicate of God. And so uh, you have some of these different uh, uh, names in their language as well. But the possible um, uh, Ben-Hadad that is spoken of specifically would have been maybe Hazael's son. Uh, many historians believe that it was a, dynast- a dynastic name, just like the name Caesar transferred down from person to person. Ben-Hadad could have been that type of man as well. And so these are, these are people that one of the uh, amazing things that it points out to us that they did, you'll notice verse 3, he says, uh, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, 
because they have threshed Gilead with threshing instruments of iron. Some commentaries believe that this is just figurative language. I believe that it's personally, I believe it's a little more um, uh, literal than figurative because there is historic uh, evidence to show that what you would have is there would be a threshing board that would go over um, uh, wheat. And those boards, it'd be a, a, a wide plank or a series of boards tied together, and underneath you would have sharp objects, you would have sharp pieces of metal, and you would go across the wheat to thresh and to beat up and destroy the wheat, and then you would pick it up, and you would shake, and the chaff would blow away, and you would be left with the the actual wheat grain and the kernels there. Uh, and, And there's evidence to show that these people had actually taken and amplified that to a larger sort of thing that would have been driven by a team of horses and they would roll over the people. And so you would have these, these massive units with these discs and metal, uh, metal wheels that would just drive over the people and destroy them. Either way, they did some pretty bad things to Gilead and God says, I noticed If you notice the second one there in verse 6, he says, three transgressions of Gaza, and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof because they carried away captive the whole captivity to deliver them up to Edom. And so here we have the Philistines. Uh, Philistines were constant enemies of Israel, and Gaza had been, uh, was the southernmost city and a main capital city of Gaza, and it uh, also indicates some of the other cities as well, uh, Ashkelon and um, Ashdod, Ekron. Uh, there were five major cities. Uh, Gath, for some reason, is not in, uh, included in this. Uh, we're not sure why. Perhaps because of the day and time, uh, it had not fully recovered from other attacks that had taken place, and so he's like, yeah, they're not even a problem, so we're going to go after the other four. Uh, but the Philistines... Its wealth and power made this prophecy stand out to the audience of Amos' day. He said the judgment of God on the Philistines was to be equal to the crime. And what we find is their lack of sparing the Israelites resulted in none of them being spared. They gave absolutely no care, no concern to the people of Israel. And the Philistines would capture and deliver the Israelites to Edom. Not only the soldiers, though, but I want you to notice what it says here in verse number 6. He says, you, uh, they carried away captive the whole captivity to deliver them up to Edom. These Philistines would not only deliver the soldiers of the people of Israel to Edom, they would deliver the men, the women, and the children, the whole group. They were not merciful, not, uh, not caring or concerned at all. They had zero pity for the people of Israel. And God says, I've noticed it. When we were in the book of Obadiah, we studied into uh, the Edomites a little bit more, so we kind of understood, uh, understand a little bit more of what's going on there. Look at the next one with me, if you would, with Tyre. Verse number 9, thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyrus and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they delivered up the whole captivity to Edom and remembered not the, uh, the brotherly covenant. But I will send fire on the wall of Tyrus 
which shall be uh, shall devour the palaces thereof. If you were to take the time to go back into 1 Kings chapter 5, you would find very quickly that the king of Tyre was very good friends with King David and was a very good friend of King Solomon. Tyre and Israel were to be friends. They had an alliance with one another. They had this, uh, this uh, alliance with each other that was uh, supposed to be something um, that... Uh, uh, kept going, and, and you never find in Scripture any indication uh, that Israel or Judah was at war with the Phoenicians. You don't find Israel ever lifting their hand against Tyre. But here we have an unprovoked evil at the hand of a supposed friend. That's what he says in verse 9. He says, and remembered not the brotherly covenant. You know, I can't help but see a parallel to Judas's kiss. I can't help but see it in this, the betrayal of a friend. I want you to understand something. Betrayal is serious to God, very serious to God. Hypocrisy, lies, deceit, backbiting, it all goes hand in hand with betrayal. It's all involved with it, and it's very serious to the Lord. Edom, we're just going to look at a couple more and then we're going to be done for this morning. He says in verse 11, um, I will not turn away the punishment thereof because he did pursue his brother with the sword and did cast off all pity and his anger did tear perpetually and he kept his watch forever. We looked over Edom in our study in the book of Obadiah. If you want a little bit more information, you can go back to there. Edom, as we studied, uh, uh, was close kin to Israel. Edom was Esau. Israel was Jacob. They were brothers, Jacob and Esau. No one, in, no one particular sin is pointed out here, but they're, uh, they're reminding us, God is reminding us here, uh, that the two being brothers should have been uh, a little bit different. But God commands us as born-again believers, and he, just, he wanted the same for his people Israel. He wants the same for everyone. He wants us to be merciful, gracious, pitiful, forgiving, loving. Edom instead was relentless, hateful, vengeful, and bitter in their attitude toward Israel. And God is saying, I'm going to judge that. And then last for this, this morning, look there in verse 13. For three transgressions of the children of Ammon, for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof because they have ripped up the women with child of Gilead that they might enlarge their border. This is an interesting one. Ammon is mentioned here, and in following that, you have Moab in chapter 2. We'll get to look at that here in a little bit. Both Ammon and Moab are nations that are resulting from incestuous relationships between Lot and his daughters. If you remember the story of Lot, and his daughters had children by him. And through those two children, you have the Moabites and the Ammonites. Sin gives birth to sin. Remember that. Never let that escape. Their evil beginning was carried throughout their national existence. 
what was wrought in sin and perversion they maintained in habits and characteristics of evil men in their worship. Now, while pinpointing when this exact event occurred is difficult, what is told is that it appears that they desired to possess Gilead. And their strategy was capturing pregnant women and ripping their babies out of their body. Do you see where our world is today? And the, the word of the Lord came to Amos in a day not much different to ours. In a day where sin was rampant, people were killing folks left and right. You had atrocities of war, people being lined up and killed and just destroyed. You have mothers having their children ripped from them. We're not much further away. So here we have this group of people who wanted land and thought, We'll just kill the babies until we outnumber them. And then we'll gain control. We must realize, we must realize, there's future consequences to our sin. And I wonder if Lot and his daughters had realized what was going to come as a result of what took place there in that cave. Would things have been different? People don't realize the effects and consequences of their sin. Your sin is not just about today. Your sin carries over into the lives of your children and beyond. It can very easily affect, very easily carry on down. And with this, we're going to kind of come to our concluding thought for this morning. Realizing that our future has consequences as a result of our present sins. What are we doing about them? You know, as we get into the study and as we continue tonight, we're going to notice the rest of uh, this challenge and this, these, uh, 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 these things brought against, these charges brought against Moab and against Judah and against Israel. And we're going to realize real quickly the ones who had the most responsibility, the people of God. I don't blame Washington for the way our country is. It's us. I don't blame Congress. I don't blame the Supreme Court. We have remained silent. And Amos comes out to Israel, and he includes Judah, just to make sure Israel knows they're not without blame either. But he comes right out of the chute and saying, this world is in chaos because you have forsaken God. Turn back, because the Lord is about to roar out of Zion. It's time for the church to realize that when we, we, we say that things are okay when God's word says they're not, when we 
skirt to point out sin as sin, and we say everything's okay, everybody's all right, it's not a big deal. You can love who you want, be who you want, act how you want, dress how you want, live with who you want. It doesn't matter. Everything's okay. That's on us because we have not stood for right. So as we get into this a little bit further this morning or this evening, keep that in mind. It's time for us to take seriously the call to repentance. But another side of that I want you to walk away with this, this morning. Amos. Simple, uneducated, hillbilly. I like him. He's a hillbilly. I associate with hillbillies. He's just a country boy from the backwoods, watching these sheep, picking a little bit of fruit off of sycamores. And God said, go speak. Yes, sir. He had an unpopular message. But he took his role seriously. I wonder what could happen if those of us who think we're small and insignificant, just one person handing out a tract, just one person standing up for what's right at work, just one person confronting people I know are in the wrong. I'm just one person. I wonder if we could have the same effect Amos did. And as we get into the study, we're going to see Amos even changed the mind of God in his prayers. What are you doing for him? Are you standing up for right in a world that is happy to embrace wrong? Or are you embracing wrong with them and shunning right? As we go through our study, by God's grace, we're going to wake up. And we're going to pursue him. And as Amos says elsewhere, seek the Lord and live. Let's seek him this, this morning. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would use this study to open our eyes and open our hearts to the way we have been living, to the things that we have been allowing, to the people that we have been affecting. Lord, I ask that you would use this to call us to repentance. Help us to see that judgment is inevitable. That you don't just let things go, but you do hold accountable your people. Help us to see this morning how you use even the smallest. Help us to see this morning how you desire for us to realize that sin carries consequence. Father, there may be some here today who don't know you as Savior. All they know about you is the judgment. But Father, I want to thank you that you, as you say in this book, you never, ever send judgment without first sending a warning. 
And so, Father, I'm thankful for the warnings in Scripture that let us know this is wrong and the other is right. Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you, Father, for entrusting us with your word. So, Father, I'm asking for those who don't know you as Savior, for them to see that. Not to see the quick uh, hand of God, but to see the long-suffering hand of God. Help them, Father, to see that there is a right way to walk. Father, for those who claim you and, and claim to be born again by the Spirit of God, help them also to see the areas of their life that they are not submitting to you. Perhaps things that they have allowed to interfere and intervene in, uh, in their life and in their walk with you. Help them, Father, to forsake it. Lord, thank you. Thank you for calling us. Thank you for loving us. And thank you for being concerned with us. Now, Father, help us as we enter into this final portion of this service where we put feet and action to the conviction and convicting power of the Holy Spirit. So, Father, help us to give over to you every part of us. We pray these things in your Son's name. Amen. You have been listening to Andy Lake, Bible teacher with Grow in Liberty and pastor of Liberty Bible Church. We pray that you were challenged today and encourage you to share this message with your friends and family. If you were motivated in some way to grow in your walk with Christ, please drop us a line and reference the title of today's message. You can access us online at growinliberty.org. Email us at together at growinliberty.org or send us a letter to Liberty Bible Church, 2111 Sodom Hutchings Road, Vienna, Ohio, 44473. If you would like to support Grow in Liberty financially, you may also do that at growinliberty.org. Thank you so much for joining us today.